The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. We're dealing verse by verse through the book of Revelation. And uh, let's remind ourselves real quickly who wrote it? The Apostle John, who also wrote the Gospel of John, and 1st and 2nd John as well. Um, what is it? It is a three genres together. It is a letter, a letter written to seven specific churches in Asia Minor in the first century. It was written probably around 96 AD, most scholars believe. It was not only a letter, it's also a prophecy, and it is also an apocalyptic document, which is a genre, a type of document, using uh, symbolism and numbers and colors, and everything's highly symbolic in an apocalyptic document. A very popular document between 200 uh, BC and about 100, 200 AD. As we said, Book of Ezekiel, Book of Daniel both have uh, apocalyptic elements in them as well. Um, it was written while John was exiled on the island of Patmos, which was like a first century Alcatraz. He was on the island of Patmos because he refused to be part of the Caesar cult, where you, uh, you worshipped Caesar and, and gave incense to Caesar at a temple. And John refused to do that, and so he was made an example of, and he was placed uh, on, on this island. Uh, many were killed, but John wasn't. Perhaps they did not want to make a martyr out of him. We don't know why they did not kill him. So, previously, to catch up from our last time together, we looked at the seven seals. Remember, he, in this vision, he saw this uh, scroll, and on this scroll, uh, which was in the hand of the one who sat on the throne, there were seven seals. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And... Um, as each seal was opened, uh, a different experience unfolded. And then as he opened the last seal, as it was broken, seven trumpets sort of appeared. And then as each trumpet was sounded, a different experience was unleashed before him in his spirit. And uh, today's passage is perfect evidence that we're likely not dealing with a document here that's intended to be seen as written in chronological order, meaning first the... the Historically, first the seals happen, and then in history, the seven trumpets happen. And then, as we're about to see in a few weeks, seven bowls. So it looks like these aren't chronological events in the book of Revelation. Um, uh, much of what we're about to study today has already taken place. Here's the odd thing. What we're going to study today, much of it has already taken place. But it was after you know, chapters 11 and so on. It's after the, the uh, seals and the trumpets in the book of Revelation. So it gives you a sense that, here's a key phrase, and to this I owe um, Daryl Johnson uh, in his book, um, where with the book of Revelation, it's not so much what happens next as so much what John sees next. That's an important principle. It's not about what happens next, it's about what he sees next. That's important, okay? Now, before the last seven plagues of chapter 16, which are the bulls, the seven bulls, which bring about the, the wrath of God poured out on a rebellious world, John pauses now to explain the underlying cause of all the hostility that's beginning to be poured out on the seven churches. Remember, this is a letter written to seven churches in, set in, uh, in a distinct period of time who are going through some difficulties, and, and the trouble is beginning to rise in, in Rome, okay? It's the age-old conflict between God and Satan that's behind all this tension. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Genesis 3, verse 15, which says, 
And I will put, and this is God speaking, I will put enmity, stress, uh, between you and the woman. He's talking to the serpent here. Between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Okay? Uh, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So, in other words, the Messiah will ultimately destroy you, serpent. He'll crush your head. You'll wound his heel. I don't know if you've ever tried to kill a snake. Years ago, I had to kill a rattlesnake. And what I did was I took the shovel and I cut its head off. And I'm thinking, well, that'll do it. You know, that ought to do it, right? No. The thing then bit the shovel with just a head. So, okay, so you've got to crush its head. Okay, not just good chopping a snake up. It'll still be functional unless you crush its head. And that's what he's saying here. He'll crush your head. He'll crush your head, Satan. And you'll wound his heel. So you'll wound him, but he'll ultimately destroy you. And this, what we're reading about in Revelation, is really the, the, this old, age-old conflict. Now, although the crucial battle was won when Christ rose from the dead, the adversary, Satan, continues to struggle, knowing that his time is short, his time is limited. So keep in mind, God allows Satan to exist. Many people think that there's this battle between God and Satan. Yes, that is true. But it's not a matter of two superpowers duking it out and who's going to win. No, Satan is a created angel. Any authority Satan has, God allows him to have. God actually, in his sovereign plan, is using Satan to ultimately achieve God's goals. Okay? So Satan rages against the faithful who, according to Revelation 12, 17, we'll see today, who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. So the struggle for God's people is very real, but the victory is very certain as well. And that's what John's trying to communicate to these people who are in the midst of struggle and it's about to get worse. He's giving them a narrative that will help them in the midst of their coming struggle. Okay? So we pick it up in uh, Revelation chapter 12. Um, it's what we're, it's referred to as the woman and the dragon. As your outline says in the box there, in the words of Dr. Gordon Fee, in turning to chapters 12 to 14 in the Revelation, one comes to the theological center of things. Here the interest is not at all with the question of when. And that's important. Many people read the book of Revelation to think to find out when. Many treat the book of Revelation as a timepiece for discerning when all of these things are going to take place. For many people, Revelation's all about when. No, this is not about when. John didn't write it about when. It's all about what, who, and why of the coming events. The what is this coming holy war which John describes. The who is the forces of evil expressed in the form of an unholy trinity which we're about to meet, Satan and the two beasts. The why is because God's people are his earthly representatives, representatives of Satan's defeat by the Lamb. So the people are asking in the first century, as we ask now, why is there war? Why is there conquest? Why is there famine? Chapter 12 is John's answer to that. Okay, So let's turn to Revelation 12. And we start with the, the sun-clothed woman and the dragon. Read in verse 1. A great dragon appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. 
Now, the word sign has two meanings when it's used in the book of Revelation. The word sign can be used to describe deceptive miracles performed by Satan's representatives. And it can also be used to describe a giant spectacle that points to the, the grand finale. And it appears that it's being used in the second sense here. A sign is a, a spectacle, a big event pointing to the great finale. Let's keep reading in verse 2 to 6. She was pregnant, this woman was, and she cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. As your outline says, the woman representing the faithful messianic, messianic, M-E, I'll write it here, messianic, community, okay? Or the faithful remnant, if you will, okay? So the, these are God's people, the messianic community. And then says, an enormous red dragon. As your outline says, he's later identified as Satan. He's later identified as Satan. So the red dragon, so the woman is the messianic community, God's people who have been faithfully following him, God's faithful remnant throughout the generations. Uh, and the enormous red dragon is Satan. Red is a symbol of blood in scripture. You can see Daniel for the imagery. Um, seven heads, remember we've learned, by now we're getting a, a grasp of this. Seven is a number of divine completeness. So heads is a symbol of authority, as your outline said. In, in the typology, heads is a symbol of authority. Any authority that Satan has actually comes from God himself. That's what your outline says. Any authority Satan has comes from God himself. Scripture is clear on that. All authority belongs to him. All power and authority belongs to God. Any authority we have, we borrow from him and we'll have to give an account to him how we use it in the future. And then ten horns. Ten, we've learned, is a symbol of fullness. Remember, ten toes, ten fingers. Uh, and there's more than one number that symbolizes fullness. We'll learn three is also a number that symbolizes fullness or completeness. But the ten horns, so uh, ten is a symbol of fullness. Horns is a symbol of strength in the Jewish mind. Horns is a symbol of strength. So full strength. So you see what this being has. Authority um, that comes from God. Uh, full authority. Ten horns. Strong. This is a strong uh, beast. And seven crowns uh, as a symbol of extreme wealth. Extreme wealth. Okay, we're dealing with extreme wealth here. And then it says, its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to earth. This is an allusion to Satan's power and influence. His power and influence. Some think this refers to demons and so on. I'm not sure the case is really strong for that, but I wouldn't argue either way. If you want to feel that, go ahead. I, I, I wouldn't argue with you. Okay, but either way, it's a symbol of Satan's power and influence whether it be power and influence over the demonic realm or simply his power and influence in general. 
And then it says, the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. That, as your outline says, is the basic Christian story being dramatized. Again, you can see this now. We're learning apocalyptic language. What he just did was, you know, it says, she gave birth to a son and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. This is classic. All this is classic apocalyptic symbolism. Look what just happened here. Using messianic language from Psalm 2.9, John, in apocalyptic fashion, condenses the life, death, and resurrection of Christ into one verse. Classic apocalyptic. So if we didn't know he was describing the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you know, you, you, you would, and you try to think literally, you think, okay, uh, the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth, so it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son. Her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Okay, literally he was born, and up to heaven it goes. No, that's symbolism, apocalyptic language for the birth, life, death, resurrection of Jesus, all in one sentence. So you're getting a clue here of what apocalyptic literature is like. And then it says, The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. That's the same period of time of the trampling of the holy city and the ministry of the two witnesses that we learned about in chapter 11. So as your outline says, this is most likely referring to the same event. Most likely referring to the same event. Okay? So in other words, this is most likely referring to the life of, 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 of the church, the life of God's people. So they're, they're in the wilderness, but they're being protected from the dragon, meaning he can't ultimately harm them, but he'll, he'll bruise their heel, perhaps, but ultimately not destroy them. Because the battle's already been won, we've learned in heaven. As we'll see here again today as well, John elaborates on that. But again, this is just apocalyptic language. He's speaking to these churches who are struggling. Here's the story. Here's what's happening behind the scenes, folks, behind the veil. Here's what's really going on. Here's the, the, the dynamic that's happening in the spiritual realm. And then, number two, the defeat of the dragon in heaven. So we, we get a vision of what's happened in heaven, the of defeat of the dragon in heaven, as your outline says. So the dragon is defeated in the heavenly realm. Let's read verse 7 to 9. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael, who was an archangel, and, the, and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, that is the dragon, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels were with him. So that's the, the effect of the defeat then is announced. The, Satan, again, in apocalyptic language, is hurled down to earth. And what's the result of the defeat? Verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. And then the role of the defeat of the believers in the defeat, we read in verse 11. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they didn't love their lives so much as to shrink from death. So their role is they testify, but even in their testimony, the, 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 some will lose their lives. 
but they've already, Satan's already been defeated and they're testifying to his defeat. Okay? So the role of the believers. And then we see the celebration in heaven, beginning of verse 12. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. That's the celebration in heaven. But look at the terror on earth. But woe to the earth and the sea and the devil, uh, because the devil has gone down to you. He's filled with fury because he knows his time is short. So you see this drama that John's depicting. Here's why you're struggling, folks, in first century Asia Minor. Because the devil has been defeated. Hallelujah. He's been defeated in the heavenly realms. He's been cast down to earth. He knows his time is short. And so he's ravaging and raging, looking to destroy God's people as much as he can because he hates you because he's so angry and he knows his time is short. And so, as your outline says, number three, the dragon pursues God's people on earth. The dragon pursues God's people on earth. And John, as we're about to see, as your outline says, gives his readers the behind-the-scenes reason for their present and future suffering. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to equip them here. Here's the reason for the suffering you're going through and you're about to go through. Verse 13. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman... That's the Messianic community, God's people, now the church, who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. It's another way of saying 1,260, as we learned last week. Then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away from the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. So as your outline says, God's people are in the middle of a battle zone. We will triumph, as your outline says, but not like a lion, but like the lamb. Remember that crucial verse we learned of earlier with the breaking of the seals you know the lion of the tribe of judah has triumphed and i turned and i looked and i saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain and the lamb was in the center of the throne bleeding it's the lamb who triumphs and john's saying that's how we'll triumph some of you will lose your lives but in losing your lives we still triumph not like a lion but like the lamb triumphed through death and resurrection so what chapter 12 depicted, so Christ has defeated the dragon, Satan, as pictured by the war in heaven. The dragon then goes off to wreak havoc on God's people on earth. Salvation has already come. Satan has already been cast down. So rejoice, you heavens. But the end is not yet. So woe to the earth. And the sea, because the devil has come down to you, he's filled with fury because he knows his time is short. Knowing his time is limited, Satan will pursue the Messiah's people, which points us to the events that's about to be symbolized in chapter 13. The Messiah's people will overcome Satan through Christ's death and their own bearing witness to it, even to the point of their own death at times. Now we turn to chapter 13. Now, there are various views regarding this next passage we're about to read. Some see these beasts 
as apocalyptic symbols of satanic-influenced political and religious structures over the centuries. Okay? So that's how some interpret this. That the two beasts represent uh, satanically inspired political kingdoms throughout history. Babylon, Persia, Rome, and, uh, and every other political system that is against God ever since then and until Christ returns. And the other beast symbolizing all the false religions, the religious systems. Keep in mind, when John's writing this, he's writing it from prison. Why? Because he refused to participate in the cult of Caesar worship. Okay? And, and so there are many who would say that these two beasts symbolize the political, satanically influenced political kingdoms and the satanically influenced, influenced false religious systems throughout history. Others see these two beasts we're about to meet as literal, historic individuals, known as the Antichrist and the False Prophet, that appeared during a seven-year period called the Great Tribulation, which we touched on a couple weeks ago. So they would say, no, these aren't general systems. These are specific individuals in the future. And then a third group see a combination of both these options. They would say, no, these represent satanically inspired political systems and religious systems that at a point in the future, at the culmination, actually are represented by specific individuals. Okay? So, first we have the beast out of the sea, as your outline says. The beast out of the sea. And John describes these, this first beast. Now again, think apocalyptic description of Satan's use of political powers to dominate people. Uh, whether it be through kingdoms or even through an individual leading a kingdom. Let's read verses 1 to 4 in, in Revelation 13. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? So, as your outline says, using our previous knowledge of the numbers and symbols, what we have here is it is an incredibly powerful, wealthy, and perverse entity. It's an incredibly powerful, wealthy, and perverse entity entity. That's what all those symbols represent as we've already learned. Secondly, in your outline, it receives its power and authority from Satan. So whether this be an individual or a political religious entities or a combination of the two, it receives its power and authority from Satan himself. And thirdly, it is very resilient. Resilient meaning it, it, it lasts. It, it's like one of those, uh, when I was a little kid, I don't know if they still make them, uh, those Bozo the Clown punching things. Had, you'd punch it and it'd bounce right back at you. Anybody have one of those Bozo the Clown things? Anyone else? Well, I was the only person who was, a couple of you, yeah. Okay, yeah. Yes, sir, thank you. So you punch it and it boom, bounce back at you. Well, that's kind of like this beast is, very resilient. You think it's gone and it's not. Now, here's what's fascinating. Um, again, this was written in 96 A.D., 
So the people who are reading this, here's what's in their minds as they're reading this. Many scholars believe that John is alluding to events that were very real to his first century readers. Take this for what it's worth. In the year 68 AD, which is roughly 30 years before this letter was written, Nero committed suicide. Caesar, Nero, committed suicide due to a revolt amongst his military and political people. This sent Rome into an apparent death spiral, okay? Because they went through three emperors in a very brief succession. Imagine a church having three senior pastors in five years, okay? And the church would be going, oh, wow, what's going on, okay? Don't say anything. <laughs> people, felt, people felt that Rome was finally going to be humbled and toppled during this time. The fact that Rome actually survived this episode made people fear Rome all the more. Rome appeared unstoppable. And to make things even more interesting, Rome was filled with the rumor back then that Nero had actually been resurrected somewhere and that he didn't actually die, some said, but he was hiding away and he was gathering an army to attack Rome and gain revenge. That was being thought and rumored on the streets of Rome at this time. So, some think that John may be alluding to this. You know, it received, a, one of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had been given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and said, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? Just when we think it's defeated, they bounce back again. Back to Revelation 13. As your outline says, the people respond to the beast in awe and intimidation. They respond to the beast in awe and intimidation. They're intimidated. This, this beast, political entity or individual, it's just too powerful. Who can defeat this beast? And then John describes the beast's activities, verses 5 to 8 of chapter 13. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. Very brief time. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. So, as your outline says, this beast political person or entity, it blasphemes all holy things. It blasphemes all holy things. It wars against and even conquers God's people. Again, this would speak to John's readers who are being killed because they refuse to worship Caesar. It blasphemes and even conquers, to a degree, God's people. And thirdly, it rules over the inhabitants of the earth. It rules over the inhabitants of the earth. Hopefully I'm not going too fast. Blasphemes, God's people, the earth. Number four, those who are not God's people respond by worshiping this beast. Those who are not God's people bow down to this political power and they, they give their lives to political power. And he says, then the next blank God's people will need to be patient and endure suffering. That's what John's equipping them here. You need to be patient and endure suffering. 
You've already won the battle. Satan knows his time is short. He's going to use all the tools in his toolbox. He's going to use the political powers. He's going to use, as we're about to learn, religious powers as well. Secondly, the beast out of the earth, as your outline says, verses 11 to 18, the beast out of the earth. Again, think apocalyptic language of Satan's use of false religions to dominate people. Keeping in mind that as this is being written, it's being written by a man who is in prison for refusing to participate in the cult of Caesar worship. And people are being killed for following his example of not worshiping the beast, not worshiping Caesar. So John describes the second beast. Look at verse 11. He says, um, Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. Here, as your outline says, it looks like it is a parody making fun of or a mimicking of the lamb, a religious counterfeit. This is a religious counterfeit. That's why scholars feel the first one is a political and the second one is a religious counterfeit. Okay, it's a parody uh, of the lamb. And John describes this second beast's activities in verses 12 to 18. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give the image, to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. So, as we see here, as your outline says, first of all, it exists to bolster allegiance to the first beast. The purpose of the second beast is to bolster allegiance to the first beast. Secondly, it exercises counterfeit powers to deceive people. It exercises counterfeit powers to deceive people. And thirdly, it somehow marks all people who give their allegiance to the first beast. So, it's this religious entity, whether it be all false religions or a unique false prophet or a combination of those two, you decide, as you understand. But this religious entity is set up to bolster the political entity, okay? To get people, to, again, to dominate people and deceive people. Now, what is this mark? I guess we'll have to stop here. Just kidding. Well, keep going. Okay. What, what is this mark? In Deuteronomy 6, as your line says, 4 to 8, the people of Israel were told this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. That's referred to as the Shema. As a Jew, that's the Shema. Moses then instructed the Israelites to tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. 
That's what Moses said. Tie them, the Shema, as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. As your outline says, the forehead symbolizing what a person thinks and the hand symbolizing what a person does. Now, when you see an Orthodox Jew today, particularly if you're around the Temple Mount in, in Jerusalem, which you will be with me in a year if you come on the trip with me, um, is you'll see Orthodox Jews who have literally strings with things tied to their forehead and strings and things tied to their hand. They're literally interpreting Moses' words here. Okay? But the forehead symbolizes what a person thinks and the hand symbolizing what a person does. Okay? In the, the mark in Revelation chapter 13 appears to be a parody of this, like an anti-Shema. Okay? The devil has an anti-Shema. Whether John is describing a literal physical mark on the body or he's using apocalyptic symbol has been debated for centuries. I don't know. You don't know. The author you last read doesn't know. Okay, we don't know. But it's one or the other. Or maybe a combination. We don't know. But it's clearly an anti-Shema that's happening here. Now, the number 666 is either a symbol... Or a gematria. Now, what's a gematria? We'll talk about that in a second. It's either a symbol or a gematria. As a symbol, six is less is, is one less than the perfect seven. Okay? So six is one less, seven is that perfect number. Six is one less than that, so it's imperfection. As your outline says, it's a number of incompleteness or imperfection. Incompleteness or imperfection, whichever you prefer. I think in this context, I think they're kind of synonyms. Three is another biblical number that communicates completeness. Okay? Seven is divine perfection and completeness. Ten is human completeness. Three is also a divine completeness number. So we have three sixes. Or, as your outline says, three sixes is complete incompleteness. Or complete imperfection. That's the symbol here. 666. It's completely imperfect, is what John's saying. It's a human construct, and it falls short entirely. Okay? As your outline says, it is humanity completely falling short of divine perfection. That's what that number symbolizes. Humanity completely falling short of divine perfection. That's what the number is as a symbol, most scholars believe. Now, As a gematria, what's gematria? This is fascinating. In the first century, people had no numerals. Okay? So no, no symbols for numbers. So this is a numeral. One, two, three, four, five. Those are numerals. They didn't exist in the first century. So what they did was they used letters for symbols. So in English, one would be A, two would be B, C would be three, D, E, would be four and five. Okay? So they didn't have numerals. So they used letters to symbolize the, what we now know as numerals, okay? Gematria was the popular practice of using numerals or letters as a code, numerals as a letter for name, okay? It just so happens that if you translated Nero Caesar into Hebrew and do the gematria, it comes out to 666. Just so happens. As I think of this, if they didn't have numerals, then how are we having seven and five and all that? I have to look that up. 
But that's for another day. Questions about what we just discussed today? We, uh, we've packed a lot in today, but uh, we're doing our best to go through this entire book. Really? We talked about the beast and the false prophet and the mark of the beast, and you have no questions? And that says she's only concerned about being obedient for what Christ wants her to do today. Absolutely. All right, folks. God bless you. That was easy. We'll see you next week as we continue.